Good morning again. I'm grateful to see you. Glad to be back in worship, gathered together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're continuing our series in We Believe because what you believe means everything. And not believing is believing. Everyone believes something. I often joke and I say the only reason there are atheists or agnostics is because there's a God. Because without a God, there could be no atheist. There could be no agnostics. So, so what you believe matters. And it influences every single thing or it should influence every single thing about your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's go to God in prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around. Lord, it is your spirit that does the work. It is your spirit who produces the fruit. Now we ask for that same spirit to teach us, to announce, to proclaim the gospel again to us, and that your Holy Spirit will transform us into the image of your Son, our Savior, our Redeemer, the living Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So um, David has uh, given me two of the hard, maybe three of the hardest parts of the creed, uh, and then he scooted out the last time. He really gave me one on the incarnation, and then he gave me this weekend the resurrection. Uh, I, I think we're friends uh, and brothers, uh, but if you have your copy of God's Word, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which uh, David uh, Munson read so well for us and to us in our hearing. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you're following along in your Bible, and we're going to be in verses 3 through 8. And so I want to, I want to uh, begin uh, by asking you the question, do you really know what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means? Because here in this passage in chapter 15, Paul is really dealing with it in all 58 of the verses, and Paul's recounting uh, uh, the, the, the gospel message and what it reflects, and it reflects the fact that it is the foremost, at foremost, a message about Jesus Christ and what he has done for us rather than a message primarily about us and how we can be saved. The resurrection, my friends, it is, a, it is Christ's story which gives meaning to our lives. It's not our story which gives meaning to Christ's life. 
That's, that's, that's what the resurrection is about. It's, it's Jesus' life which gives meaning to our lives. That, that, that's my point. That's it. It's Jesus' resurrection life that gives meaning to our lives. I, I, I love this because if you read these verses, chapter three, uh, chapter 15, verses 3 through 8, Paul, uh, Paul you'll notice that, that the subject of all the verbs are Jesus Christ. It's all about Christ. It's about his resurrection. Because he says in verse 17, uh, you, I mentioned this the last time, that, that, that Paul says in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith, what you believe is futile, it's meaningless, it means nothing, and you and I are still in our sins. So three headings. Same three. How it happened, why it matters, and what it means. First, let's dig into how it happened. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. I love the for usness of the gospel. For it is written, cursed is anyone or cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That word curse, you know it means judge. So anytime you see the word curse in scripture, it usually means judge. So what Paul is saying, that Jesus Christ was judged for us. It's hard for me to get that out because that's so exciting. That's so comforting. That's such good news that, that, that all the judgment that you and I are constantly feeling like we're under or the, we're constantly doing for ourselves and to ourselves and others, the good news of the gospel is that over your whole life, Jesus Christ has stood in your place and and absorbed all the judgment that you place on yourself, all the judgment that you receive from friends and families, family members, Jesus Christ has been judged in your place. How would happen? This is going to get a little graphic. Because the Romans, although the Romans, they didn't invent the crucifixion, they perfected it. They perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment. And it was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. The victim's back was first torn open by scourging and the clotting blood was ripped again open when the clothes were torn off the victim, Jesus. 
And when he was thrown on the ground to nail his hands to the cross beam, the wounds were again torn open and contaminated with dirt. Then as Jesus hung on the cross with each breath, the painful wounds on the back scraped against the rough wood of the upright beam and were further aggravated. And when the nail was driven through his wrist, it severed the large median nerve and this stimulated nerve produced excruciating bolts of fiery pain in both arms and resulted in a claw-like grip in the victim's hand. And beyond the excruciating pain, the major effect of crucifixion was inhibiting normal breathing. The weight of Jesus' body pulling down on the arms and shoulders tended to fix the respiratory muscles in, in an inhalation state and hindered exhalation. And the lack of adequate respiration resulted in severe muscle cramps which hindered breathing further. To get a good breath, while Jesus was on that cross, he had to push against the feet and flex the elbows pulling from the shoulders. He was nailed. It put weight on the body and on the feet and it produced a searing pain and flexing the elbows twisted the hands hanging on the nails. Lifting the body for a breath also painfully scraped the back against the rough wooden post. And each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing. It was exhausting. And it led to a sooner death. Death from crucifixion could come from many sources, acute shock from blood loss, being too exhausted to breathe any longer, dehydration, stress-induced heart attack, or congestive heart failure leading to a cardiac rupture. And if the victim didn't die quickly, the legs were broken. The victim was soon unable to breathe. Christ did that in your place. Jesus Christ, for your sins, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, the perfect for the imperfect. Jesus, who was rich, became poor so that we could be made rich. Jesus, you've heard this, paid a debt he did not owe, and we, you, me, us, owed a debt we could not pay. It was a vicarious substitutionary atonement. I love that word, atonement, at one minute. 
In the, in the Old Testament story of David fighting Goliath, David is really pointing us to Jesus Christ, isn't he? Because the story of David is not about have more confidence or feel better about yourself or don't try to wear somebody else's armor. No, the real story about David really is that David stood in the place of the nation and fought a vicarious victory for the people of Israel. And that's what Jesus Christ did for you and for me at Calvary. That's, that's a vicarious substitutionary atonement. Jesus did not die a spiritual death as some believe. He just, he just died spiritually. He didn't die physically. No, no, no. Jesus literally died on that cross. As horrible as the physical suffering of Jesus was, the spiritual suffering, the act of being judged for sin in our place, was that, that's what Jesus really dreaded on the cross. Now, if you've never been judged, then you don't know what I'm talking about. But the next person, the person sitting next to you knows exactly what I'm talking about, what it feels to be judged or blamed for something that you did not do. Jesus willingly did this. He says, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And this was the cup, the cup of God's righteous wrath that he trembled at drinking. On the cross, Jesus Christ became the enemy of God who was judged and forced to drink the cup of the Father's fury so that you and I would not have to drink that cup. That's how it happened. Christ died. Not only did he die, Paul says, he says, he was buried. It, it, was, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross so that it would be devoured by predatory animals. That's not what happened. The record tells us that Christ was buried. A big baller, shot caller named Joseph of Arimathea came and begged his body. Matthew 27, when it was evening, there, was a, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus, and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Jesus Christ died for you. And he was buried for you. And you know, you always wonder, why did Jesus, why did, why did, why did Joseph give Jesus his tomb? Knowing that he was eventually going to need it. I'm glad you asked. Because, G, because Nicodemus was a disciple, a follower of Jesus. 
And he had heard what Jesus said, that if you tear down this temple referring to his body in three days, he would bring it and build it back up again. So when, Nick, when, when Joseph went and got Jesus' body off that cross and put it in his own tomb, he said, well, he's only going to need it for the weekend. <laughs> he was buried. Jesus' burial is important because it fulfilled the, what the scriptures declared. Isaiah 53 and 9, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. It, it, Jesus' burial, it's proof positive that he really died because you do not bury someone unless they're really dead. And Jesus' death was confirmed at the cross before he was taken down to be buried. Remember in John chapter 19, they, they were going to break his legs, but they noticed he was already dead. Christ died. Christ was buried. But here's the good news. Here, here, here's the heart of the gospel, because that's, that's what I labeled this sermon, the heart of the gospel. You and I and billions of men and women have assembled this weekend, not because he died only, but not because he was buried only, but because he was raised from the dead. This affirms God the Father, a uh, 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 Father's approval of Jesus' life. It affirms the approval of his teachings and his sacrificial death. Look at what God the Father is doing. He's vindicating his son. God the Son, he's vindicated because God the Father raised him up from the dead. I love this. Because in Scripture, being brought back from the dead has three senses. Those who did not die, but who went to be with the Lord. You remember Enoch and Elijah. Enoch, in Genesis 5, walked with the Lord so long until he looked up and noticed that he was closer to the father's house than he was to his house. So the father says, since you're already here, come on and stay. And then, and then Elijah, oh, you remember that rapturous scene of Elijah who'd get the message that he's going to go and his, his protege, his, his, his son in the ministry, Elisha says, but before you go, I want a double portion of the anointing that's on your life. And then all of a sudden, a chariot of fire came and took Elijah to heaven. And so they, 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 they didn't die like you and I may die. But what they experienced, we call being translated. And then some, through the power of God, are brought back from death's door to physical health. We call that healing. And we, all, we, we call that resuscitation. There's translation. There's resuscitation. But the thing about resuscitation is they will die at some point in the future. But there's only been one resurrection. Only one. Jesus died. 
but was raised from the dead and given a new body prepared for eternal life with God. Paul in Colossians says he is the firstborn from among the dead. I like that. He says, he says he's the firstborn because after him I'm going to come and you're going to come. Because if we are in Christ now, we don't get out of Christ when we die. Paul says we die in Christ. I'm trying to hold myself together. I'm so excited because I live in Christ. But, but as a believer, you and I die in Christ. But I love this because for us believers, because of what Jesus does here by rising from the dead, he changes everything about death. You know, before Christ, death was just like a cul-de-sac or a dead end. Once you were there, there was no, there was just, you were just there. There was no way out. But Jesus turned a dead end from a back door to a front door. I love that. In the black church, I remember growing up and one of, one of the pastors used to pray in prayer. He said, he'd get to the end of his prayer and he said, Lord, when it's your time to call and my time Time to answer. I, I, I want you to give me a home where the wicked cease from troubling and the weary at rest. Give me a home and let me walk, watch this, out of the back door of time into the front door of eternity. Oh, that's good there, isn't it? Because that's what happens in when Jesus rises from the dead. He changes it from a, a, a door that's a dead end, but he changes it from a dead end to a back door out of time, but I'm walking into the front door of eternity. And, and one, of, one of my, I, I was AME, but there was one of my favorite bishops, Cornelius Henderson. He was a, one of the first African-American uh, 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 United Methodist Bishop of, of Florida. And, and, and when somebody would die, he would just say, they've outrun us to the Father's house. Uh, that's, that's, what, that's what happened. That's what God is doing here in Jesus Christ. He has transformed death. He has taken death, and now death is no longer the end for us, the final sentence for us. Jesus has completely changed it. He is the first fruit, the firstborn from the dead. So why does it matter? Paul is writing this lengthy chapter. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's long. He's, he's not writing because the resurrection of Christ was being denied. I want you to understand that. He's writing because the resurrection of the Christian's body over against the pagan doctrine of the immortality of the soul was being called into question. See, in the first century, the first century church was so influenced by paganism, and, pa and pagans believe that, 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 that there is immortality for the soul, but not for the body. 
They, 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 you have a, a, a different belief system, a, a docetism and, 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 and some others that, 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 that deny Jesus Christ is either God in the flesh or they say uh, uh, he's all spirit but not flesh or they say he's all flesh but he ain't spirit. There's so many, but, but the pagans were saying that, that, that we believe uh, that, that you're going to live forever, uh, your soul will live forever, but but, 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 but Paul said, uh-uh-uh-uh-uh, not for the follower of Jesus Christ. Because, because right now, at the Father's right hand, there is a person sitting there with flesh just like you and just like me. I told you, he's making intercession for you and me right now in a physical body. And that's what makes Christianity Christian, that Jesus Christ rose physically from the dead and he has a new transformed glorified body. They said, the first century said, the pagan said, immortality of the soul was unquestionably true. But the resurrection of the body was ridiculous. And some believers saw eternal life in, term, in terms of the immortality of the soul. First century popular paganism argued that the senses surrounding the immortal soul were given by nature but could not be enjoyed beyond the grave. This matters because there's still people that believe that the soul will live but the body is just going to decay and that's it. But that's not, the, that's, not the, that's not the testimony of God's word. Testimony of God's word is that Jesus literally, physically, with his body, got up out of that grave, folded those grave clothes because he was raised by a Jewish mother who was probably a neat freak who said, you better fold those clothes when you get up. And he did, and he, and he got up physically. Stone rolled away. But the, the stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so, so those first disciples could look in. Listen, listen at what uh, historian Kenneth Scott Latourette says. He says, it was the conviction of the resurrection of Jesus which lifted his followers out of the despair into which his death had cast them and led to the perpetuation of the movement begun by him. But, but, but for their profound belief that the crucified had risen from the dead, and that they had seen him and talked with him, the death of Jesus and even Jesus himself would probably have been all but forgotten. This matters because in, the, in those first disciples, they struggled, but they came to realize that Jesus Christ said he was the resurrection and the life, and he said it, and he meant it, and he proved it. 
This, is, this matters. Because the resurrection is so critical to us that there is no Christianity without it. There is no gospel. There is no good news without it. That you, you are hopeless. You have a hopeless end without the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, listen, is not some add-on to a more important work on the cross. If, listen, if the cross is the payment for our sins, then the empty tomb is the receipt. It's showing us that the perfect Son of God made perfect payment for our sins. And the payment itself is of little good without the receipt. On the third day, he rose from the dead. His life is the life that gives your life meaning as a mother. His life is the life that gives your life meaning as, a, 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 as an executive or, or, or whatever you do. His life is the life that gives you meaning as a student. His life is the life that gives you meaning. That's why it matters. His death is the payment. His, his death is the payment, but his resurrection is the receipt. So what does it mean? I've, I've just got done reading a book. By, it's one of my favorites. Uh, I'm reading it uh, again uh, by uh, Jeff Vanderstelt um, entitled Gospel Fluency. I'm, 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 I'm shook by this book because of what I realize that most Christians, many of us sitting in this room right now, don't know what the gospel is and how it applies to the everyday stuff of life. For example, one night earlier this week, or maybe last week, I, for some reason I, I had a dream about a snake, a, a rock, a black rock python that that was squeezing my arm, and I don't I don't I don't know I I had seen um, some of you are too young to remember uh, a Wild Kingdom Wild Kingdom which was sponsored by Mutual of Omaha, <laughs> but 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 it was it was it was it it wasn't Mutual of uh, Wild Kingdom it was another show uh, uh, along that same genre and 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 so I had seen some of the most dangerous snakes in Africa. And so one of them was this rock, rock, rock python, and, and, and I, had, I, I had one dream that this, this python was, was squeezing my arm, and I, I, how was I going to get him off my arm? So I was laying in the bed, sleep, but I'm working this all out of my mind. I got to get up, and I got to get to the kitchen, and I've got to get a knife so I can get him off my arm. I'm talking about the gospel for everyday life. And then I woke up, and I couldn't get that dream out of my head. And I'm reading gospel fluency. And you know what? It took me back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After Adam and Eve sinned and God first passes judgment on the serpent and he says that the, the, the offspring, the descendant of Eve is going to crush the serpent's head. That's the gospel that I needed to know. 
I don't know what that dream, dream meant, but what I needed to do was connect it to the gospel to know that whatever the enemy or the fear that was coming upon me, that Jesus Christ has already defeated that serpent for me. When I fail at being a husband or, and I, or, or I feel like Kira is not being a great wife, I have to remember the gospel that teaches me that Jesus Christ is the better spouse. And he loves me better than I could ever love Kira or Kira could ever love me. He has given himself for his bride, the church. He's the better spouse. And when I'm not doing good as a father, I have to remember that, that the Jesus Christ reminds me of a father whose son went away and lived any way he wanted to live and came back broken, busted, and disgusted. And this father that Jesus Christ shows us is not a father who rejects or says, I told you so. No, he's the kind of father that's willing to humiliate himself and he picks himself up by his robes and runs out to meet his son. That's what kind of father you have if your earthly father didn't never measure up. That's the gospel. Jesus was raised with a glorified body. He took on our sin at the cross where he paid for it with his blood and destroyed its power. He overcame death and was given new life. And in his glorified, sinless body that can no longer be taken down by Satan or sin or death, he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the new and better Adam over a new and better creation. And through the body of Jesus, through his lifeless in the tomb, though he, God brought forth through Jesus another woman, the second woman to be brought forth from a man's body. All of us, each and every one of you who believe in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection go from having Adam the first Adam as their authority and life source to having Jesus as the new Adam. Adam, the first Adam, sinned, and everyone, each of us born since then, was born into sin as a result. Don't forget that. Don't ever let it become old hat. It's the absolute truth. We deserve nothing. Everyone except Jesus. Remember, I told you, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born without sin and, and is the very righteousness of God. And when we are born again by the Spirit, that's what happens. We are brought under Jesus as our new Adam, our new life source, and our new authority. He is the beginning of a new creation. And guess what? You and I are a part of it. When you get down this week, and I'm sure you may, 
There's a song I want you to remember. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, not, it, not that I feel it, because I know who holds not just the future, my future. And at that moment, you want to give up. You can testify. Life is worth the living just because he lives. The same spirit that conceived Jesus in Mary's womb, the same spirit that descended on Jesus at the River Jordan when he was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist, the same spirit that fell on Pentecost Sunday, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. That's the same spirit that lives inside of you right now, giving you the strength to keep your mouth closed when you want to speak and giving you the courage to speak the truth about Jesus Christ in love when you are afraid to open your mouth, that's the same spirit. Let's pray.